Hello and welcome to the Sportling Podcast. I'm Mark Armstrong and this week myself and John Downs are joined by former British middle distance runner Rod Finch. Rod was once one of Europe's finest athletes, famously winning a bronze medal at the European Indoor Athletics Championships. We'll find out how about how he built an international athletics career alongside a career in the 3rd Battalion Parachute Regiment and what his running looks like nowadays. John will tell us his training tip of the week and in hijinks with John, he tells us about breaking wind in a race. So John, how are you mate? All all right? Yeah, I'm very good, Mark. Thanks for asking. Good stuff. Can you just tell us a little bit about this week's guest? Um, Rod is Rod is a person that I I, I ran against since the, the early '90s. Um, we had many many battles uh, over you know six stage road relays, national six stage road relays, twelve stage national cross country relays. Um, he wasn't as strong at cross country, but he was a tremendous tremendous road and track runner. Um, culminating with a European indoor bronze medal over 3000 when he was very very hard you're talking top french athletes top spanish athletes um he ran 13 27 for 5000 uh, an all adversary and so i'm looking forward to finding out his story today Rod, welcome to the Sportling Podcast. Thanks ever so much for joining. How are you today, mate? All all right? I'm very good. It's um, a pleasure to be here. I'm, um, I'm quite honoured to be with you two today. Oh, well, thank, thank you. It's a pleasure to have you on. Look, Rod, we, we normally start off just, just with, with how, how our guests normally got into running. So, so sort of what, what's the start of your running journey? How did that transpire? Uh, probably quite unusual in the fact that um, I probably didn't come from perhaps a, a normal background. So at, at school, I was um, a footballer. Um, pretty much um, I used to play in midfield um, probably pretty much up to the age of 15 I suppose I played sort of county standard football um, used to do a little bit of cross country in the winter uh, and I was okay at it um, and probably my last year I kind of went to the district championships and just found a pair of football trainers like you do and qualified for the county championships and thought oh maybe I should pair a pair get a pair of spikes and maybe I should do a, bit, a little bit of training sort of two weeks before the county championships. <laughs> um, crazy now when you look back on it. Um, and I ran the county championships and I think I finished 10th or 11th and I, I got a county vest. Um, and at that time when I was playing football, I was at kind of county level and I was very quick, very fit, um, technically very good, but um, I was tended to be told by all the people at that kind of level that I was too small not big enough, not strong enough, and almost that I wasn't going to be good enough to, to be a footballer because I just wasn't strong enough. Um, and I kind of found that a little bit tough to take as a 15-year-old, um, being told that you're not good enough, probably with a lot of people in sport to, to an extent. Um, and I kind of left school, joined the army straight from even school at 16. Um, still played football quite a bit in the army uh, kind of um, whilst I was going through all my training at Winchester and kind of combined a bit of cross country in the winter um, with a bit of football in, in the kind of summer season um, and it probably wasn't until I left my basic training after about a year or so and got posted out to Berlin um, to a regiment called Hampshire Regiment and I'd almost fell out of love with football by that stage and I was still running a little bit, two or three days a week. And there was a lad there who was on the cross-country team. And John will probably know him, a guy called Vince Stamp. And I think mm. Vince had seen me out running. He said, and he spoke to me, he said, 
do you know what, Sunshine? I think you could be an okay runner. So Vince kind of got me into the into the regiment, regimental cross-country team and athletics. And, you know, I started taking it a little bit more seriously and probably ran four or five times a week. Um, and that's pretty much how it started. Um, so Vince Stamp is probably the person that kind of got me into running. I always knew I could run a bit at school and, you know, there was a very good reason that probably why I used to come off the football pitch and never seemed to feel tired. Um, you know, I knew I had a fantastic engine when I was playing football, running up and down from box to box. So it was probably a very good background to get into running that the aerobic system was was quite large and the engine was there to do running. So yeah, Vince Stamp was probably the first person that kind of got me into it in the first stages um, to kind of see what I could do. Mm. Right, because I actually had him written down as one of the one of the people that would have been from Southampton Running Club and so on, and uh, and that. But right, so Vince is after kind of convincing you to come around to running a bit. You you've kind of thought, oh yeah, there always has to be some sort of a breakthrough race or something you've done or some sort of train you've done that you you kind of see the jump and you kind of go, actually he's talking a little bit of sense here and I've, I've gone to a little bit of a different level now. What, what was that moment, Rod? Um, I suppose we've we come back from Berlin and we've gone back to um, Tidworth near Andover and we joined the local athletics club. It was a very small club, probably no more than 20, 30 people, a very small village club. Um, and I was probably training men six days a week, training with Vince probably four or five days a week. Um, and I went to a local league event, 1500 metres down at Yeovil. Um, and at that time, I'd never broken four minutes for 1500. And I won the race and ran 3.59. And I went, hmm, okay, maybe there's, there's something there. And at the time I was 20, I suppose. So nothing fantastic. You know, it, it's nothing good. But I kind of stood back and went, hmm, maybe there's something there. Um, so it was, it was probably breaking four minutes. And then in that same year, I think I broke two minutes for the eight. Um, and, you know, Vince was always in my ear saying, look, if you really want to take this a bit further, there's a lot of talent there. Cause he could see that, you know, the way that I ran, it was really smooth and it's nice and rhythmical. And he said, you've got all the biomechanics yeah. to be really good, but you know, you now need to make that decision. Do you really want to go to the next level or, or where do you want to go? So, it was probably that race, um, to be quite honest. Um, but even after that, it was a hell of a struggle to kind of jump from that kind of stage. Um, because obviously with being in the army, you know, we'd sometimes go over to Northern Ireland for a four or five month tour. And this was back in late eighties when, you know, the troubles were on, it was um, not a nice place to be. And at the time we were in, in kind of South Amar, right on the border, what you call bandit country. Um, so, you know, it's quite funny because we were never allowed out. If you went out, you would always kind of have to have an escort or, or go out with, with, with loaded ammunition. And so the only place I could train was kind of within the camp. And there was only a hundred meter circuit and it probably had about eight corners in it. And I did this for four months, going around a 100-metre circuit <laughs> with about four corners. And at the, at the same time, because, you know, we were probably working 
60, 70 hours a week, seven days a week. So it was, it was, um, it was interesting times. Um, but it was just, you know, at that time I was starting to fall in love with it because I'd kind of had that indication that by breaking four minutes for the 1500, that maybe I have got something here. Let's, let's see what I can do. So there's always kind of barriers there. Um, but I tended to never let them get in my way and had a, a massive belief, even at that stage, you know, and, and it wasn't fantastic to run 3.59, but there was just something in my head that kind of told me that, do you know what, you, you might be quite good. Uh, and that's maybe been slightly egotistical, but I just had a, a really deep belief in my own ability, even at that stage. Um, so, yeah, that was, that was pretty much how it started to get going, really. Um, and then it really took off um probably in about 89 when eventually i um was in 89 87 um 88 89 when i got posted back to southampton and that's when i hooked up with my coach tony fern down at southampton um and then the same year i went to the army championships and became the army champion over 1500 so that was probably again another really good indicator but going into the club system at Southampton was the real big first step and to kind of open my eyes up and start training with what I would call a really good training group. So that was the, the first step where I kind of thought, yeah, you need to get in with, it, with these guys because at the time they were an unbelievable group to be in with and I was at the back of the group. So it was, um, it was a great learning experience to start with without a doubt. Um, um, you know, it's, uh, it was fantastic. So that was probably... The first step on the ladder, shall we say, John and Mark, to be quite honest. How did, how did your training change then, uh, Rod, when, when you came back? And also, I just wanted to ask you about sort of, but with being a footballer, did, uh, and you mentioned that your biomechanics were quite good. I, I know that, including myself, someone who played a lot of football when I was younger, my biomechanics for running is not great. So, so is, is that something that you had to work on at all? Or was it just quite natural? No, it was very, very natural. Um, you know, I've, I was very tall, very long-legged, you know, and that's, I wasn't the, the archetypal football footballer build. Um, but, you know, like I said, when I played football, I could run all day on the football pitch. I could get to box to box, but I just wasn't big enough or strong enough. And at that time, that's what they were looking for at junior level football. You know, if, if I go back to nowadays, they would probably turn that around and say, we're looking for technically fantastic fit footballers. So in the space of sort of 20 years, but, the type of footballer that I was is probably what they would want nowadays. But at that time, it just wasn't there. Um, and I suppose being with Vince was a very good learning curve because I saw what he was doing. So I was kind of following his kind of stuff. And it, it just kind of evolved that I kind of was just running five days a week and maybe doing a, a couple of quality sessions. Um, and then once I kind of got to sub four minutes or 1500 I started introducing a few morning runs a couple of couple of days a week just to kind of get a, a bit more mileage um and then eventually that kind of progressed um when I won the army championships the next day I got posted out to Germany which is another story um to start training six days a week and doubling up every day but it was an 18 month, 18 months to two year process to getting from five days a week to doubling up six days a week. Um, so, 
yeah, it was just a, an evolving process, I suppose. And I was pretty lucky to kind of run into people that were quite inspirational um, and knew what they were talking about and probably saw a little bit of talent. You know, and then um, I kind of... Yeah, I mean... Go on. No, go on. I, you know, and then I kind of went out to Germany um, and sort of posted up between Hamburg and, and, and Bre up, up in the north of Germany. And I was out there for two years. And then, and then again, I was quite lucky in that time. I hooked up with, a at the time, there's an army regiment out there here with the Army Cross Country Championships. And funnily enough, at that regiment was a, another lad who I'm sure John will have heard of, a lad called Mark Vile. Um, so... And I knew Mark from running the 1500s because that's what Mark used to do. So I, I used to kind of, he was about half an hour away. So I kind of used to go up and train um, with Mark and some of the lads up there. And um, again, it was, um, it was fantastic because they were very, very good. Um, again, Mark was um, an unbelievable person to train with. Um, one of the most talented lads I've ever, ever come across. Um, but probably one of the most laziest as well. And he will probably admit that. Um, but it was just to train with those guys again, you kind of thought, God, they are just, if I want to get to the next level, each time I was kind of falling on my feet a little bit and finding people to kind of hook onto and, and run with. Um, and that's what I was always doing. And then whilst I was out in Germany, I was running for a German club. Um, and then I, I kind of, Again, I was getting better and better all the time. I, I went to the North German Championships um, and I won that in 3.44. Um, so, I, again, another really big jump in the space of 12 months. Um, and then whilst I was in Germany, it was, it was very evident that it was, it was difficult for me to find the competition both on the Army Network and also on the, on the German scene because... He, it was you could kind of enter so many competitions in Germany, but not so many because they were quite closed. Um, so eventually, um, in in ninety one, I got posted back to Aldershot, um, close to my coach Tony, uh, close close to my group, and that is probably where it took off big time because when I, as soon as I came back in ninety one, having run in three forty four. I got to the final of the three A's and, and finished sixth. And, I, and that was probably when I thought, wow, you know, I almost started to feel that I belonged a little bit um, with the guys at the time running those times. Um, and then it was um, a case of going back down to the group at Southampton and, and, and starting to really put some work in. In the space of two or three years, I'd kind of gone from 357 down to 344. Mm -hmm. So quite a big jump in, in, in two years, really, to be quite honest. Um, and and that and obviously when I got back to Aldershot, it was it's a fantastic place to train because you've got all the grass pitches, you've got the hills, you've got the track. Um, and I was still going down to Southampton, so it was um, that's probably when I started to realise that you know you could perhaps do something here, um, and that's pretty much where it um, started to take off big, big time, really. Um, and then that kind of evolved a, a little bit in you know the group that I was training with were an amazing group of guys to train with um, and what I found fascinating looking back on it is that 
we probably had a group of about a dozen, 15 guys, uh, and all of us came within sort of 15, 20 miles of Southampton. And, you know, today that is very, very rare, I think, to, to kind of find that. Uh, and we, we became, because we were kind of young guys, we kind of all got together at 21, 22. Um, you know, we all stayed together and we became very, very, a very tight unit. Um, and, and we'd kind of do anything for each other. Uh, um, and then obviously, I trained down there with them after coming back from Germany. And 93 was the massive breakthrough in that I was training really well. Um, I'd been away warm weather training. The sessions were going well. Um, I think I'd run 342 at the, at the three A's, but got knocked out in the heat. Um, and then I got an England vest off the back of that, um, running in a an international mile race at um, Cardiff. And at the time, again, I got a little bit lucky in that. Um, it was very, very difficult to get into any kind of um, meets in the UK at that time. Because, um, you know, even running 342, it was almost closed shop, you know, because at the time you had Andy Norman and it was just so difficult. Unless you were an established star, it was just so difficult to break through. And it wasn't a case of me not trying to get in the meets, you know, all the time I would pester them trying on the phone and they would just, no, 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 just put the phone down. Um, and then I was at this England match and the manager at the time was a guy called Rob Harrison, who's a very good eight fifteen hundred meter guy. Mm, yeah. Who John might know in a time. And, and he's, he, he knew of him and he said, you know, why can't you get in these events? And I said, look, I've just tried and I can't do it. And, and at the time, Andy Norman was there watching. Um, so Rob said, look, come over here and, and have a chat with Andy. So Rob took me over and he, he said, you know, he said to Andy, look, is there any, any way we can get this guy into one of your meets? Because, you know, he's run 342 and typical Andy, he turns around and goes, who the hell are you? And I said, and Rod Finch, he goes, never heard of you. Never heard of you. And he goes, I'll let you in. Don't mess it up because you will not get another chance. Um, so I think Gates said was about four weeks later after this meet. Um, and I went a man a, a 337. So again, a, a massive drop. Um, and I think it just it does show that the gut, you know, if you get a chance, there's probably loads of guys out there who just want a chance to get to get, you know, a slot in a race. Because, but you know, I think guys will do it. But you know, in that year, you know, I'd want to. I think I'd won the Intercounties Mile. I'd, I'd gone and run a, a 5K on the track and won the South of England Championships. Because um, at the time, I'd kind of known I was probably more 15 5K. I didn't have great track speed over 800 metres. Um, you know, I could run quick and I could run a good flat four, but I always knew even at championship level that I was going to be struggling over the last 400 metres to go with those guys. You know, I could run a... A 52, 53 last lap, but that wasn't going to, that was going to cut the cake at the end of the day. You know, you had to have the capability of, of hitting a 51 and a, and a second over that kind of distance was just way too much. Um, and then obviously, again, I, I then was lucky I got my sponsorship off that. So, you know, I was then starting to feel that I was kind of an established athlete and it was going amazingly well. And then I went into the indoors. And then ran 3K indoors because obviously I'm, I'm quite tall and found that 1500s, I, it was just difficult to hold the bends a little bit and change pace so quick, uh, whereas 3K kind of gave me a little bit better. Um, and then again, it was um, a massive shot. I went into it 
uh, and I came away with the European bronze medal. And that was, again, you know, so in the space of almost eight months, my whole life just changed around totally, just totally changed around in the space of eight really. It was just, um, it was amazing. It is amazing. I mean, I, 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 it's, there's so much of your story now that I didn't know. I didn't know about you being posted to Armagh and across the Glen area. I didn't know that you were in North Germany and you were based up near Bremen. I knew none of this. Yeah. But what I am fascinated with is, you know, that you were doing around a hundred meter little block, that your, your, your mindset uh, was very good. And I think I love listen to stories like people like you that come true right and that did things differently or self-coached or bit of a maverick or bit of an outlier or whatever you want to call it in that you weren't really contaminated and, and i don't mean that in a horrible way by the juvenile system coming up along and you just got on with it and there was kind of no barriers in your head to say i can't do this it was what can i do next how can i improve and I, and I think it's, it's, it's people like you I'd be looking for a lot more because of that uh, mindset. I totally agree. It's a great mindset, bro. Now, I think um, it's fantastic. You know, when I started running down at Southampton, I, I, would, go, I would go to trap meets and I had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea who I was racing against. And I would come off the track and I would win the race. And the guys I was training with would go, do you know who you've just beat? No idea. <laughs> and I think naivety is an amazing thing in athletics in that. And I kind of look back now in that I wish I could have kept that naivety as I got better, but it, that was never going to happen. But I was just so naive at the time that I just got on the track and I just, I ran with a freedom because I just loved it. And I didn't know who I was racing against. It was a case of gun, go, let's go, let's run fast. Um, and I kind of enjoyed that. Um, and like you said, I probably, because I hadn't come up through the system, I had no perception of what I was supposed to do or who I was supposed to beat, wasn't supposed to beat. Um, but what I, I always did do is whenever I met other athletes, I would have, I would always talk to them and find out what they were doing. Um, and it's something that my coach Tony and I always did for lots of years and especially as I started to go to away to some of the um, bigger meets I would make it a purpose to go and sit on tables with athletes who I thought were better than me and try and mm. try and get a knowledge dump load I'm not saying I would copy what they would do um, but if I thought yeah hmm, that's a little bit different I might try and do that um, but more than often Whatever I tended, I used to find that wherever you go in the world, running doesn't change at most distances. We all do the car, the same foundation stuff, the same basic stuff. There's little tweaks here and there. Um, but having traveled around the world and spoken to lots of different athletes, more often than not, we tend to do 80, 90% of the same thing the way that we train. I don't think it changes that much, but I think you're quite right, John, in that because I wasn't brought up in the English school's bubble, shall we say. I was very naive. Um, you know, like I said, I, I wish I could have kept that naivety for a lot longer. A lot longer. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was, um, it was a hell of a journey. You know, I obviously went to Paris. I won the European bronze and then I came out of the indoor, um, went away again for some warm weather training. I was caning it on the track, 
some of the sessions. They were out of this world. Um, I then went to Hengelo end of May, ran a 1500. I finished second in the 15 to um, Kevin McKay. I think Kevin beat me by a couple of tenths. And I think we both ran 338 off of 52, 53 last lap. Um, and, you know, me and Kevin kind of warmed down at the time. We kind of looked at each other. And we both thought, well, if we can do that, you know, there's got to be a 334 in there, a 335. Um, and um, unfortunately, three weeks later, I, I broke down with plantar fasciitis. Um, you know, I'm probably on the edge. Probably shouldn't have been pushing so much. Um, but athletes do tend to push sometimes when they're running very, very quick. Um, because it just, you know, because you're in yeah. sessions, you just keep pushing and pushing because you think you're, you can just keep pushing the boundaries. Um, and then it was a, an 18th month hard slog trying to get away from that injury. You know, I, I don't think I ran for nine months because of the injury. I couldn't find anybody to sort it out. Um, I, had, wow. I had injections on it. I had physio on it. You name it. You know, I was all over the country trying to find somebody, but it took me nine months before I could even run again. Um, and then, of course, another 12-month cycle before I could really um, get back into it. And that, was, that sort of took me into sort of 97. Um, so I was, what, 30 at the time? Um, and then it was a case of I kind of had to sit down with Tony McCoach and say, look, we know there's something there of 5K, possibly. Um, we need to make that decision now before it's going to be now or never. Um, and probably like a lots of 1500 meter people, it's quite comfortable running three and three quarter laps. It's quite nice. <laughs> um, and the thought of kind of moving up to 12 and a half laps was quite scary as a 1500 meter boy. Because, <laughs> 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 you know, we are... Yeah, we, we are quite... meeting in a shark coming down from nine miles yeah. cross country. You know, we are quite comfortable. You know, I used to do all the cross country and I used to do all that, but I, I, I wasn't great on the country. You know, I used to run on my toes and I used to slip and slide. I used to watch guys like you and I used to think, God, they're so good. I wish I could run cross country. You know, I could finish in the top 20 in the Southerns and that to me was about as good as I was going to get, but it was, it was still okay. Um, so 97 was kind of a, a break point for my training of do I stick at 15 or do I go to 5K? We made the decision to move up. Um, but we were very analytical about it um, in that we... We went and got lots of training diaries of people past and present who had run 5Ks from Foster to Milosorov to Martin to Ian Hamer to Rob Denmark. And we, we kind of looked all through their training diaries just to see what they were kind of doing. Um, Mileage-wise, at the time when I was running 15s, I was probably running 70 miles a week through the winter, 70, 75, and that kind of come down to 60 and obviously, I knew, I knew I had to increase the mileage a little bit. Um, I had tried playing around with mileage a little bit. Um, I could get to 90. If I went to more than that, my body would break down. And, and, my, and I knew that I just could not go to more than 90 miles a week. Um, so I kind of went up to 90, ran about 80, 90 miles a week when I was running 5Ks. Um, but when you look to their diaries, um, the thing that I would always we always picked out from their diaries was there was always 
one key session which they did and every single one of those guys would do that kind of same session maybe in a slightly different format so if you looked at foster um i think aim as well slightly they would always be running 1200 repetitions on the track you know so four times 1200 below race pace um tony was was quite different in that he tended to do it more on the country a little bit on, on a kind of a, a 1200 on mile loop um you know looking at tony's diaries he was an absolute animal um you know, it was almost like he was trying to see how far he could push his body and trying to break it almost a little bit. Um, but there was always a key session in there, which was kind of 1,200. So the training stayed the same, primarily the same. Um, I tend to do a few more hills in the winter. Um, the mileage went up. I obviously wanted to keep that 1,500-meter base because I, I, I knew – that I needed to still have that 1500 speed in my legs a little bit. So I knew I was going to maybe lose a little bit of pace, but I wasn't too worried about that. But it was, a, it was a case of trying to, how can I run 12 and a half laps, both mentally and physically? So you'll probably laugh at this. We, we tried to run the 1200 session on the track and I never finished the session. I would step off the track after two or three because I just mentally... I got bored of running around the track and running 1200s. And I know that doesn't sound great, but I just, I just couldn't do it. Um, and Tony McCoach at the time said, look, you need to find a way to do this key session. Um, and at the time on Southampton, there's a big common, um, which is, there's road circuits of the different distances. And we used to hold the trial, our time trials on there for the, for the road relays. Um, and there was a circuit of about two and a quarter miles. And I thought, well, Maybe if I take it off the track and take that mentality of going around in circles, because I used to quite enjoy running on the road and see how, how, I, how I could put that kind of session onto the common. Um, so I came up with the session of running three times, two and a quarter miles off a minute recovery on this slightly undulating road circuit and trying to get them down to running 4.30 miling if I could. Um, come come eight point eight time, um, and it's probably only it's probably a session which I probably only ever did five or six weeks because it was it was an eyeballs out session. I'm an absolute eyeballs out session. You know, I used to have some guys that would try and do the session with me, and I don't think one of them ever finished the session. They would almost end up in the bushes, um, <laughs> being sick and everything it was it was a yeah. it was a go to the well session but it's what it taught me was to run fast and rhythmical over a long period and i think that's the step up from 15 to 5k what you need to master um so then again i went i kind of went into the 98 season having had a really good winter um i knew i could run a good 3k so i knew i was kind of had a fighting chance and when I, I kind of I went to Loughborough early May over 5k and so I knew I could run 750 755 indoors at the time so I said okay let's maybe see if we can go through in 820 825 and I should feel okay so I, w- I went to Loughborough I won the Loughborough meet in 1352 and it, it felt really good I mean really good 
so I, I then came off that and I think I got a meet in um where was it I'm just trying to think now it was in the, it was at Cork in the Cork, Cork City Games um I, I ran there and I said okay let's see if we can go through in 8 10 8 15 because I'd gone through an 8 28 25 and I felt good um and again it went really well so again I dropped from 13.57 down to 13.42. Um, but all the time, I had to play games when I was running the event. So I would I would never look at the lap counter in the home straights. I would put my head down not to look at the lap counter. Um, and for me, the race would start at 3K. If I could get to 3K and I was in control, I knew that I was in the game. Um, so that was what it was all about. And then I ran the 42 you know, I ran the Commonwealth Games standard at the time, um, and then I had a bit of a a bit of a disaster come the trials. I, I night before I got a bit of bit of a funny tummy. Um, it was almost too late to pull out the trials, so it's the Commonwealth and the Europeans at the time. Um, so I ran a little bit under the weather in the trial and finished fifth, I think, in the trial. Um, but off the back of that. I got a race in um, Hexel in Belgium to see if I could get the, um, the to see if I could get the qualifying time. Um, and I just thought, well, you know what, you've got nothing to lose. I think the qualifying time was 28, 29 at the time, 13, 28. So I thought, well, you know, I'm going to need, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm need to go through in low eight minutes. Um, and it just came off in the night, and I'm going to, you know, a 1327. Um, but I was so. And then I got selected for the Europeans um, in quite an unusual way. So I'd run the race. Um, I'd run the qualifying time. I think there were only three of us that had the qualifying time at the time, or maybe four of us. Um, but I was going on holiday to Cornwall. Um, so it'd been a really busy year. And I, I promised my wife, Jenny, that we would go away. And, and Gemma, my daughter at the time, was um, I'd just been born. She's about a year old. Um, so I tried to phone... British Athletics at the time said, you know, can you tell me when I'm going to be selected? They said, well, there's a, a selection committee going on in about a week's time and, and you'll find out then. And, um, and I said, well, how will I find out? He said, well, just look on the telly. So I found out I was selected for the European Championships on teletext. Can you believe? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Crazy. Crazy. <laughs> and that's how I found out. Uh, that, I was, that I was going to the European Nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. My name came up on teletext. I had no phone call from the selectors. No one phoned me. That's how I found out. I think we were hiring a cottage in Cornwall and the lady came in because she knew that I was possibly going, knocked at my door and said, your name's on teletext. And that's how I found out. And I look back and now I think, that is so ridiculous. So... <laughs> You know, it was just so I, you know, we cut the holiday short and it wasn't great um, prep for the Europeans. And I went to the Europeans and I didn't run a good race, whether it was because, you know, because of the, the prep or the build up or whatever, but it was an, an, an amazing experience. Um, so, yeah, I mean, even having run the 1327, I then went into the next winter in really good space thinking, well, if I can run that and I'm really only just kind of trying to play around the event by going through a little bit quick all the time, if I can get another good winter under my belt, I still felt that I could 
go 13, 15. And I know that's another big jump, but I, I really did I really did feel that I could do that the way that I was starting to run the event. Um, Good man. So I went out to um, South Africa for six weeks training with a guy that I knew out there, uh, the Dutch guy who, who I used to train with. Um, and there was a guy that used to come over, a guy called Tommy Swart, who used to run for us, a South African yeah. guy. You might remember Tommy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Tom used to invite us over to South Africa and I went to his place for six weeks. Again, the training was getting fantastic. Um, and then my wife, had, my wife at the time, Jenny had gone up to spend a, a couple of weeks with my parents. Um, and then I got a phone call whilst I was out Then My life was kind of turned upside down in that I got a phone call from my dad saying, Jenny's gone to hospital. Um, she's feeling nothing down one side of her body. Um, and she was diagnosed with a brain tumour. Oh, God, love it. So, Sorry to hear that. My life got kind of, you know, changed massively upside down, so I kind of came back from South Africa, obviously on the, on the first flight that I could, and that was kind of April time, um, and then it was a case of just trying to look after Jenny, really, because it was, it, was, it was terminal. They couldn't operate. It was The, the tumour in the brain was just way too big for them to operate. It would have killed her. Um, you know, Gemma at the time was one and a half, two years old. Um, right. And then, unfortunately, Jenny died away, uh, passed away on the on the New Year's Eve. Um, she kind of got through Christmas to see um, Gemma. Um, believe it or not, I, I still carried on running through the summer um, because it was it was my it was my place to get away. Um, you know, yeah. and I will always be thankful. To what running gave me because of that it was it was obviously a very difficult time um and i look back at it now and i still ran 1345 that year and i still don't know how i did that mm. um you know and there were the times i'll i'll be running on the track and i i it was like an out of body experience i just didn't even know i was there sometimes and then i would run a fantastic time and i'd go back next week and you know i wouldn't break 15 minutes on the track um but then you know Jenny unfortunately passed away um, on the New Year's Eve, and then you know I was left with a, a single dad to bring up a two-year-old, um, and then yeah. quite clearly right. Gemma very much became my priority in life, and I still carried on running um, more so because it was you know gave me a bit of peace, a bit of tranquility, um, time to get away. Mm. Yeah, um, because you know I was working at the working at the time, still in the army, still working a full time job, still trying to run, still trying to look after a two year old, and you know it, it was crazy. Um, but I just wanted to keep on running because I just loved it, irrespective of, of what I could run. The times didn't match yeah. me at that time. It was just a case of yeah, yeah, yeah. It was just uh, getting away. And to be quite honest, I probably never ever got back again from that. You know, I, I tried to make it back, but it um, life just was, um, it was just too difficult, really. You know, yeah, I, yeah. It, it, I tried to get back and it, it wasn't for the sake of, of not trying. Um, and injuries started to become a little bit more frequent. I, I, always, I was always slightly injury prone, um, but obviously Gemma was um, my priority at that time in life. And it sounds like, it obviously, completely understandably, it completely changed your relationship with with, with running uh, as a result of obviously the 
such 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 sad thing that happened to you. What, 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 um, did did it, did it stop being a, a competition for you then, Rod? And and then it was just a case of of using it for, for sort of therapy, for for want of a better word. Um, really. I think once you're a competitor, you're always a competitor, especially at that level when you've been to that level. Um, and it wasn't it wasn't so much about winning things it was it, it was more about how far how fast can i really run how fast can i push those boundaries um and on the flip side of that running it is a journey no matter where you come from whether you come from you know a just enjoying it socially to trying to get better to try and go into elite you know we all have the the same thoughts whether you're a club runner or you're trying to be an olympic athlete those thoughts don't change it just means that you know, the elite athletes just they just run a little bit quicker, but they all have those insecurities. And that and at the end of the day, we all do it because we love it. It's not because we're trying to, you know, run for Great Britain and you know, run for Great Britain and run the fast times is kind of the icing on the cake. And I mm. I, I I can't believe that if you ask anybody at the end of the day why they do it, they will say, because I love it. And it begins it gives us so much and teaches us so much about life in general. I think you know, it is a, it is a journey, and and I I see that now through coaching a little bit and how you can change around people's lives, um, both both physically and emotionally. Um, and I think that is sometimes forgotten with running. Um, and obviously now being involved in, in in coaching, you kind of see what the effect club coaches have on people. And I would. And I think it's one of the, the most underrated things that club coaches do in shaping people's lives. And I think that's sometimes forgotten in that, obviously, at high level, they're trying to produce these elite runners, um, how they affect people's lives. Um, because, you know, people at the clubs are having, you know, problems like I've had in my life. And club coaches can have a, a massive effect on that at the time. You know, Tony, my coach, um, he's godparents to my daughter Gemma. You know they were amazing to me, um, and and he will forever be one of my greatest friends that I've, I have ever known in my life. You know, and, and he's the only person that ever coached me. So you know he has coached me for sort of twenty odd years. So we've become very very close. But on the flip side of that, you know his wife is a, an amazing lady um, who I will be indebted to for the rest of my life. Listen, I, I am absolutely delighted I've asked you to be discussed. I really am. I knew none of this, knew none of this story at all. And I think it's absolutely commendable, everything you've done. But like even, you know, before your wife and stuff like that, trying to combine an army career, because obviously it's not an easy job. It's not an easy thing to do. Um, you know, being around with all the times we ran against you at London Irish versus Southampton at the six days road readers down in Aldershot and all the battles we had and watching your skinny ass come past me and stuff <laughs> and making it look so easy. Um, you know, I mean, but to find out this part of it and to, to find out that you're still involved and that you're giving credit to Tony. Like, I mean, I think Tony Fern is very underrated because he came from Birmingham and he would have known all the Tipton lads and the Ron Bintleys and the Tony Millisaurus and you know, the Bulbaldaros and all the knowledge. And you have all this knowledge now yourself, Rod, and you're helping these young people on their way. And it's, as you said, it's the journey. 
And it's, yeah, we want to be elite, but it's changing people's lives. And that's the most important thing that uh, I've taken out of what you said down the last maybe 15 minutes in that some terrible stuff has happened to you, but you've tried to use it as a positive to help you to help other people on their journey. I think that's an amazing thing. And uh, how many people are you coaching now or, or helping at the moment? Um, so it was, it, was a, it was a funny way to get into coaching. Um, so in about 2012, um, my daughter was a very good gymnast, Gemma. Um, she's kind of starting to fall out of love with the gymnastics because, um, as you probably know, gymnastics is a, is a very tough sport to be in. Um, and, and they wanted her to start doing 20 hours a week within GCSEs at the time. Um, she was doing a little bit of high jump up at um, Newby Athletics Club and she was okay at it. Um, and she kind of came out of gym one night and she was in tears. And I said, why do you do this if, you, if, you, if it makes you cry? Uh, she said, I've just had enough. I, I want to go and do a, a bit of high jumping. And she's doing a, a bit of high jumping. And at the time, it, as I said, it was 2012. We were watching the Olympics. And, you know, they're on the screen as, you know, the, probably the star of the 2012, Jess Ennis, um, doing the heptathlon. And um, she comes down after watching the Olympics after about a couple of days and says, I want to be the next Jess Ennis. <laughs> and you look back on it now and you think, how powerful is it that somebody like that can empower a junior athlete mm. and say, that's what I want to be. And yeah. again, I don't think we should ever forget that, that these yeah. athletes can have such power and drive and, and change young people's lives. Um, so she came down and said, I want to be a heptathlete. And I went, oh, okay. <laughs> That's a bit of a shock. Um, so I'm sure you can imagine it's, it's not easy trying to find a multi-events coach because they're kind of like gold dust in this country. Um, fortunately, we found one in Basingstoke who was pretty good. Um, and she started going down there in 2013, like most parents. I didn't want to get involved. Obviously, one, because of my background a little bit. I didn't want to ever want to push her um because you know with with sport they have to do it themselves and they have to have that passion and enthusiasm to do it so i kind of like most parents just sat in the car for a year and watched her and took her to training and then fortunately unfortunately andy her coach found out my background um he kind of came up to me one day and as you well know the 800 meters is a uh, one of the events in the heptathlon and he said um he had about six girls, kind of 14 through to 17. He said, do you fancy training them over 800 meters so they can run 800 meters? And it's something I'd always noticed going to junior events. Whilst the HEP is seven events, it tends to be, we'll do the six and we'll run an 800 and what happens will be. Um, because obviously multi-vendors don't tend to like doing 800 meters. So Andy said, can you get my girls fit to run an 800? Um, so he kind of, got me involved in the coaching that I used to coach all the girls over 800 meters. So they, they weren't losing any points. And if anything, they became very good at 800 meters and making ground up on the field. And then um, I did probably did that for a couple of years with Andy and the group. And then um, Gemma went off, off to uni out to the States and he kind of turned to me and said, well, you seem to be quite good at this. What are you going to do? And I was enjoying it. Um, and, and, and kind of seeing the success I had. Um, and I said, well, I wouldn't mind having my own group. And that's pretty much how I got involved in coaching. It was, it was quite small. I only had three or four people at the time. Um, and I was very fortunate and I got 
one of the girls who was a multi-eventer, um, I took her to the English school. We ended up converting her to a 300 hurdles. And in the first year, she won the English school's silver medal over three hurdles. So I got a little bit of success very early. Um, and then a few people started to come in and the group started to grow a little bit. Um, all females, no males in my group. I have no idea why I've got all females. Um, so again, it's, um, it's an interesting concept, training females, but quite enjoyable and quite a laugh. Um, and I really do enjoy it. So I suppose in the group now, it has started to go a little bit. Um, I've probably got 10 to 11 ladies oh, wow. ranging from, how old are they? Probably ranging from the youngest is 15 all the way through to someone who's about 35, 36. And recently I've had three men come from other groups who've kind of seen the success. And I think they've kind of, at the time, I think many people knew my background. And so um, I'm now coaching maybe three senior men and about 11 ladies. So, um, yeah, it's, um, it's enjoyable, but hard work, <laughs> really hard work, very hard work. Brilliant. Do you, do you still run yourself, uh, Rod? Quite no, no, I, um, I, pretty much, I pretty much stopped competing when I was 39. Um, I carried on running maybe for two or three years um, because, you know, it's very, very hard just to draw a line undo it when it's just been so much of much of your life um i probably cut back to an end five times a week um went and did the odd park run um ran okay time at a park run i'll then get home and kind of thought how can i get a little bit quicker maybe if i did another session or maybe if i put another the other half of my brain was saying to me, God, what are you doing? What are you doing? You're trying to stop it and you're getting back into it. And fortunately for me, Jen was just got to get into athletics. And I said, Rod, go enjoy your daughter. Stop it. And that's what it's so I, I haven't run since 39, 40, 41, really. And about all I do now is jog across the track to a time of split. And that's about all I do. <laughs> I play a lot of golf. Good. Oh, fair juice, fair juice. One thing before I go, that group that you were saying, the 12 and 13 and 14 people around you, you know, when you were uh, went to Southampton, like the Andy yeah. Morgan Lees, Ian Harper moved down there, Tommy Swartz, yourself. Yeah. Um, it, 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 was, it was a great time for Southampton Running Club. And especially, I think, I want to come back to Tony here. Tony deserves an awful lot of credit, credit for what he kind of moulded and made there at Southampton with the likes of Vince Stamp as well. It was, it was a really special time, you guys winning the, the, the six stages and stuff like that around Aldershot Arena and, and, the, and the battles that we had. It was just, it was, I think it was a really special time and it, it's a hard to believe it's so bloody long ago. It's, it's, it's crazy, but, you know, um, do you still keep in touch with some of those guys or are they oh, all gone different roads? I look back at it now and, you know, we had... There's probably a core of about a dozen guys, a dozen to 15 guys training with each other. And we had eight guys running sub 30 minutes for 10K in that group. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, you know, and that, if you look at that now, that is, you know, you won't get that unless you go to one of the time hubs if you're lucky. Um, yeah. And, you know, for me, my, my greatest love was doing the sixth stage. I don't know why, yeah. but it was. Mm. It, I don't know whether it was that team ethic or whatever. It was almost like it was my way of giving something back to the group who had, you know, done some of my reps yes. or, or, yeah. or, work, or work for me. It was my way of saying to my club 
and to the guys that were breaking their arse for me to run quick saying, I will put myself on the line for you anytime you want because my success is your yeah. success. Um, so, yeah, Tony, yeah. I quite agree. He doesn't get the success. You know, we've counted that he's produced up to 20 international athletes in his time coming from that group. Wow. Mostly, wow. mostly from around Southampton. Um, mm. We're very, very tight. You know, um, we all keep in contact with Tony all the time. Um, um, you know, I think he had a, an 80th birthday party and there were over 200 people there. <laughs> wow. You know, many years around from mm. Ali Wyeth. Ali Wyeth was there because obviously Tony used to coach Ali Wyeth for a little bit. Um, yeah. Um, Before she came up to Parkside, yeah. That, you know, the number of people that were there from all the people that would coach and it, it just bears testament to how well and how highly thought of Tony Furnies as a coach f- from his ex-athletes yeah. because, you know, he would always be there, you know. I went to South Africa and he came out to me for six weeks. And I <laughs> paid it all himself, you know, and he, all the meets he would go to, his time and the amount of effort he used to put into every single athlete um, was unbelievable. You know, he wouldn't, he wouldn't coach all those athletes. He, he would kind of concentrate on maybe eight or nine guys who he knew were totally committed. And I tend to do the same way that at the moment. Um, you know, pe- I'm more than happy for people to drop in the group. Um, but I have a philosophy that if, if I'm going to coach you, I will do that 100% of my knowledge and 100% of my support and I will bend over backwards to make you as good as possible but the flip side of that is you need to buy into that 100% because if I'm giving up that time you need to be committed into that and then I think once you get that between a coach and an athlete that's a, a fantastic start point to hopefully get some kind of success Brilliant I Brilliant Ron. Yeah no listen Absolutely fantastic, mate. I mean, um, he, he was great in that regard, uh, Tony, in terms of, you know, he encouraged me and I was the opposition. And not just me, people from different clubs, Dale Lachlan from Chelmsford, he'd go, well done. He, he was just about people. Um, no, it was great times. I really, really, I really, really enjoyed those times and battles we had, mate. No, I was amazing. Listen, I mean, thank you so much for this. It was amazing. You know, I mean, the, the, the greatest race that I ever saw in that sixth stage was I think he was in the national um, and I think going out on the last leg there was London Irish us Birchfield and Bingley and we were all going off within 20 seconds on the last leg and it's one of the greatest races I've ever been involved in and you know, some of the guys going off on those last legs they were absolute animals and then I, knew, and then I think at the time there was you and there was um, um, Cormac Finity on the team and the two Birch mm. Yeah, and it was oh, it was hot, man. It was hot, but it was great to be involved in. Brilliant, brilliant. Rod, thanks a million. Thanks a million for doing this. I, I've really, really enjoyed this podcast. I really have. Um, thanks for sharing your 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 story, your journey, and stuff like that. Um, Mark's got a few random questions to ask you know, but listen, man, <laughs> respect to you. I've I like as I genuinely have enjoyed this, and all the best to you and your coach and going forward. All right, my pleasure, John. Great to speak. All right, bud. All right, Rod, I'm going to hit, hit, hit you with the first one now. All right, so you've just run a marathon, all right? Or yeah. Just, just a really tough race. What's the first thing you eat and the first thing you drink? 
Well, it definitely has to be chocolate because I'm a bit of a chocoholic. Oh, really? Oh, massively. Yeah, I used to eat tons of chocolate. Not great, for, <laughs> not great for the nutritionist out there. Um, and a nice cup of coffee. I also like, uh, I like, I like, I'm into my coffee quite a bit. So uh, probably a cup of coffee and a, a nice bar of chocolate. The finer things in life. I like it, mate. Absolutely. <laughs> right. You can listen to one song to get you in the zone before a race. What do you listen to? Uh, this is probably going to be a little bit corny. Uh, Chariots of Fire. Oh, nice. Yeah, no, we've not had that one yet, I don't think. Excellent. No, no, yeah. I, I even used to listen to it when I was, um, when I was getting in the zone. It's um, very uplifting. So, yeah, a little bit corny, but, yeah, that's what I listen, used to listen to. Yeah. Well, t- seeing well, as, as you don't run now, I'll ask you what it, what it was then. What, what were your favourite trainers to, to wear? Uh, I never really used to have a favourite but obviously, when I was I got sponsored, probably the shoe which I really loved when I was sponsored was a, a shoe called uh, by Mizuno called the Wave Rider. Um, I used to really love, so that's probably my favourite shoe that I used to wear. Well, there's been all, all different iterations of that since then as well. Still Absolutely, there. yeah, yeah, yeah. Great stuff. All right, you've you've hit the wall and you're completely depleted in a race. You're just about to quit. You can see one person on the side of the road or the track to help you get you through this tough spell. Who do you see and why? Um. Probably my daughter Gemma. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> because I'm that. Probably because what she's had to go through as a um, a little girl from from two years of age from from losing her from losing her mum. She is um, <laughs> she's pretty inspirational. So yeah, I would have to say my daughter Gemma. Great answer. Great. And finally, the, the absolute random one. I'm, I might have to slip in a, a, another one as well. Like, what is your favourite cheese? Oh, it is uh, Cornish Yard. Uh, believe it or not, I'm a Cornishman. I was born in Cornwall. Um, so I, tend oh. to, I, yes, I am. Yes. <laughs> so I, I tend to uh, promote Cornwall very well. Lots of clotted cream and lots of Cornish Yard. Nice. Yeah. Right. It, 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 bearing in mind the chocolate answer, what's your favourite chocolate bar as well? Oh, Galaxy by the ton. <laughs> nice. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, the man from Carnell. Yeah, so thank you very much. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Most people won't know what that is, but you and no. I do, so that's all that matters. They, I, knew, I knew you were clever. Uh, well, just, uh, you know, thank you. I might get a swelled head in a minute, but anyway, thanks. <laughs> he just hides it, Roddy, so he just hides it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All the best, mate. Thanks, thanks a million. Mark, John, been a pleasure. Thanks, mate. All the best, Cheers. buddy. Take care. John, it's that time for the training tip of the week. What have we got, mate? Um, I'm going to talk today about the long run, but how to try and mix it up a little bit. Um, like, it doesn't matter how long you go. So keep that, whatever it is. For some people, that could be nine miles. It could be 12 miles. It could be 15, 16 miles. But what people are inclined to do is they're inclined to be very one-paced, Jonas. But something I used to try and do with halfway with some of the athletes I used to coach was to try and pick it up at 75% effort. So for the next... Three minutes, four minutes, five minutes, you would pick it up to 75% effort. So you'd be going along nice and easy and then just pick it up and concentrate. And what it does is it helps you to acquire kind of little fast twitch fibers when you've been plodding slow so the body has to switch and adapt. And I would probably do it again for the last four or five minutes of the run. So you're doing it for four or five minutes in the middle, four or five minutes at the end. And it's like anything, you can progress it. So as you go on over the next couple of months, you might build up to 10, 11, 12 minutes in the middle and 10, 11, 12 minutes at the end. What you don't do is you don't go bananas. You don't go flat out. This is for the majority of people that would be what I call people that have committed to the sport late. And it's not flat out speed work, 
but it's just teaching you to kind of push that little bit to up it and try and make the run a little bit more economical and better for yourself so that you improve and perform better in your races. John, hijinks with John this week. What have we got? Well, today we got uh, break and wind. And it's not that you're in the race break and wind for somebody else. Because <laughs> a lot of people used to sit in behind me because I was such a big guy and I'd, I'd break <laughs> the wind. This was in a, a 1,500-meter race where we were going down the back straight and we were about uh, 500 meters in and somebody broke wind. It was the most bizarre race I've ever ran because... There was 12 of us in the race and everyone of us were laughing. We couldn't stop laughing. We laughed all the way to the finishing line. The officials got very irate with us that we weren't taking it seriously. We all tried to explain every different one of us. None of us could explain because we couldn't stop laughing. Uh, so breaking wind is not like what you're thinking, breaking wind. It was who broke wind. And nobody owned up, but he was just the loudest loudest in the middle of a race somebody break and win it wasn't you it was, you know I, do you know what if it was me I'd say it <laughs> but it wasn't and I got a feel of laugh and my laugh once I start laughing good luck it's virtually impossible for me to stop and I think I've a laugh that makes other people laugh and it just we just we just I remember some guys said we just can't race this and that even made us worse laugh worse it was it was stupid. It was stupid, but it was it was so funny at the time. I remember the team manager coming up to me going, what? What the? And, I just, and he just started laughing. He said, what could you do? You know, it, we didn't mean it. It wasn't planned. It couldn't be helped. But somebody broke the biggest fart ever, and we just laughed for the next, for the next thousand metres. <laughs> none of us raced in. None of us tried to get points. We just all ran in. We just couldn't. And we all just... Laughing, and everybody was looking. I thought we'd lost the plot. That was it. Brilliant, John. Thank you so much for your help this week, mate. Top man. All right, all the best, Mark. Thanks. God bless. Mm-hmm.